defense lawyers fairly skillfully are able to suggest to the jury, this is somebody who wasn't on the street for his own reasons. He was out there protecting you. And very few of us, when we make mistakes at work, wind up being prosecuted and incarcerated. It's one thing for the jury to acknowledge that an officer made a mistake in the heat of the moment. It's another thing for a jury to be willing to brand that kind of mistake as worthy of putting that officer in a cage. This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, we look at fascinating, sometimes controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers, and together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, I'm happy he's going to jail, part two. In part one, my colleague Marjorie Korn Hello, everyone. talked with two different academics about what's wrong with policing today, whether the Derek Chauvin trial has the potential to change anything, and what change could look like if it were to happen. My sense from both interviews was disappointment, that even in the midst of unique times like these, doctors Kraska and Haberfeld felt that real change to policing is unlikely. Here's Dr. Haberfeld. I don't believe that there will be a transformational change because change is not a function of one high-profile case. Change is a function of transformational change within the organization. And Dr. Kraska. It just seems like the same pattern that we've been witnessing for the last 80 years, literally 80 years of, of you know, hand-wringing and big reform movements and lots of new things are going to happen. And there just always seems to be a workaround. There always seems to be a, an entrenched mindset and a cultural and political context that really doesn't allow anything real to happen. However, here in part two, Marjorie speaks with Dr. Larry Rosenthal, professor of law at Chapman University, and Sheriff Aaron Applehans of Wyoming, who have slightly different takes and significantly more optimism about upcoming changes to law enforcement in the wake of George Floyd's killing. My name is Larry Rosenthal. I am professor of law at Chapman University in Orange, California. Prior to that, I served first as an assistant United States attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, a federal prosecutor, and later as deputy corporation counsel for counseling appeals and legal policy for the city of Chicago. So I have a fair amount of both academic and real world experience. As someone who has been involved in police misconduct cases on the legal side, Dr. Rosenthal likes to contextualize what's at stake when police officers are brought to trial. These are extraordinarily different prosecutions to prevail on. And I think the factor that the defense successfully exploits in most of these cases is that this is not an ordinary defendant. In most criminal cases, it's easy to identify the kind of personal, selfish motive that the prosecution contends underlies the crime. In, in financial crimes, that's obvious, even in most violent crimes. You find that kind of self-interested motive underlying it. But when it comes to police misconduct, defense lawyers fairly skillfully are able to suggest to the jury, 
This is somebody who wasn't on the street for his own reasons. He was out there protecting you. And very few of us, when we make mistakes at work, wind up being prosecuted and incarcerated. It's one thing for the jury to acknowledge that an officer made a mistake in the heat of the moment. It's another thing for a jury to be willing to brand that kind of mistake as worthy of putting that officer in a cage. So according to Dr. Rosenthal, that's why these cases rarely result in convictions. But it also helps explain why the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial headed the other direction. I think there were a number of unique factors in in the case. For one thing, the the whole incident went on for so long, it certainly didn't look like a a heat-of-the-moment error of judgment. It began to look far more like sadism. The other thing that was fairly striking about this case is Minneapolis police officers were willing to testify against Officer Chauvin. Dr. Rosenthal talks about his time working in Chicago, and he has a different take on the Blue Wall of Silence than Dr. Haberfeld had in Part 1. I worked in the city of Chicago for more than a decade, and I was involved in a lot of police misconduct cases, both civil litigation, where we had to decide whether we thought the officer did it or not and whether we would represent him, and in cases in which we were seeking to fire police officers. And in that entire time, I never once encountered a case where one officer was willing to testify against another. In fact, we we had a little tell that we used in order to figure out whether the officer did it. If the other officers on the scene said that they didn't see anything, that told us two things. The first thing that told us is that the officer accused of misconduct probably did it. And the second thing it told us is that the officer accused of misconduct was a jerk. Because in any other case, whether the other officers on the scene saw it or not, they were always willing to testify that the officer accused of misconduct did exactly the right thing. And often we think about this problem as one where we need new laws, we need new policies. And some of that is appropriate, but we're not going to really get a handle on this problem without a culture change. And at the risk of sounding optimistic, what this trial suggests to me is, is maybe a culture change is just beginning to take place. Maybe it's becoming acceptable for police officers to testify against a colleague um, who's made at least an egregious, an egregious act of misconduct. Because once you breach what's often referred to as the blue wall of silence, once officers get the sense that even their colleagues are going to tell the truth about what they see out there, officers are far less likely in the first place to engage in that kind of misconduct. I suggested to Dr. Rosenthal that what made this case different was that in Minneapolis, you didn't need officers' accounts to recreate what had happened. There was this bystander video, which made it very clear how things went down. There are a couple of things that I think can be said about that. The first thing is that I I do have a rule of thumb that I've used in other police misconduct cases involving criminal prosecutions that works pretty well. If the officer tells the truth about what happened, even if it looks like a mistake, 
of judgment with benefit of hindsight. The officer gets acquitted. We're not even charged. But if after all the shouting is over and the officer goes back to the station, has an opportunity to reflect, and then is asked what happens and the officer lies, the officer gets convicted because juries will forgive a mistaken judgment in the heat of the moment. They will not forgive a lie in response to an official investigation. Juries often think when, when they see that kind of, of, of error at work, they ask themselves, is this a case of there but for the grace of God go I? And defense lawyers skillfully exploit that. And jurors can imagine when they're frightened and panicked, making a mistake in the heat of the moment. They can't imagine lying about it in a calm, deliberate way after the fact. So the first thing that happened here was something that I think is common. It, it, it seems that the officers minimized or out and out lied about what happened on the scene, and that was the first problem. But beyond that, it's true. We don't always have video evidence, but it's also true that we now live in a nation where all of us can act as videographers at will. Just take your phone out of your pocket, and officers are keenly aware of that. So police officers sense that there's always a risk of this kind of video surveillance is going to be ever increasing. And then finally, the culture shift that I mentioned a few minutes ago, the willingness of officers to testify against each other is striking. At this point, Dr. Rosenthal outlines a proposal that he's been championing to better deal with cases of police misconduct. The final point I will make is I have advanced a fairly radical proposal, what I call the radical middle, which is on the one hand an effort to signal to officers that there's going to be some understanding for their errors in judgment in the heat of the moment, even when, when they have tragic results. And on the other hand, signaling simple tolerance for police misconduct. Police departments ought to adopt policies that they will never fire anybody for using excessive force in the field. Those individuals may wind up prosecuted, they may wind up sued civilly, but they're not going to lose their jobs. They, they might be suspended, they might be reassigned, they might be retrained, but they'd be given a measure of safe harbor. We understand that there are errors in judgment in the heat of the moment. You won't lose your job for that. But any officer who makes a false report about excessive force, whether it's about what the officer himself did or what the officer saw, that automatically requires termination. And the reason I think this approach would be so radical is that it would powerfully change both incentives and cultures because it signals to officers that they have to tell the truth. Their careers are at risk if they don't. And if you know you have to tell the truth, and if you know that your partner, your colleagues have to tell the truth, the likelihood that you're going to engage in this kind of overzealous enforcement in the first place is going to go down. That's about culture change. And I think culture change is far more important than any other kind of objective here. I feel like I have to jump in here and ask how you reacted to this proposal. So I got to say, I was a little dubious at first. 
At the top of the interview, Dr. Rosenthal said that he is kind of a person who goes right down the middle, that radical middle. And when I hear that, I'm like, okay, let's let's see how this plays out. But truly, his position doesn't feel like it falls on either side. I'm not an expert in this in any way, shape, or form. But my question, kind of hearing that and reacting to it is, how does this proposal on paper, how does it like translate to the streets? And if you think that racism is a deep-seated problem in policing, or that like the policing rules give police officers too much leeway, it doesn't really address those issues. Well, on its face, it doesn't seem to, but it, it sounds like what he's saying is that it could have these psychological knock-on effects, reducing the worst kinds of police behavior that we all seem so offended by. It's interesting. I'm not saying I'm for or against it here, but the first thing that occurred to me is it's a little like how some folks think about parenting. They want to offer an unconditional environment of acceptance for their children. You won't be kicked out of the family for hitting your brother, but you can't lie about it. Now, I realize there are edge cases and the analogy isn't perfect, but I have to admit there was a moment there where his proposal endeared me to, or at least endeared the parent in me, to Dr. Rosenthal. Yeah, I, I like that analogy. But what if it wasn't like a clear-cut case of hitting your brother, which is clearly outside the bounds? Or the hitting was collateral damage of another action? Well, I guess I think we're demonstrating why we're podcasters and not writing police policy. That's number one. So let's just go ahead and throw it back to an actual expert. I do think that this outlook is one of those creative approaches that may get buy-in from more parties, which is something that they would likely need. Perhaps it's part of that elusive middle ground. Well, when I say culture change, the primary vehicle for that is what I'm referring to as a kind of radical transparency, where officers come to the conclusion that their conduct on the street is going to be consistently scrutinized, scrutinized by people who understand that both there is a need for proactive and sometimes aggressive enforcement, and there are going to be mistakes, but people who also demand transparency. One of the striking things about so many of the cities in which this, these kinds of cases arise, like Minneapolis, is they have very large and very politically active communities in, of, with people of color in them. And, and there's no pro-police misconduct lobby there. If the people can see what the police are doing, and if what the police are doing is unacceptable, the politics themselves will produce reforms. Dr. Rosenthal goes on to talk about the defund the police movement. And this is an area in which he agrees with Dr. Haberfeld. There's all this talk about in Minneapolis, even the city council voted uh, to abolish the police department. And it's a kind of fraud, because if you actually look at the Minneapolis public employee labor relations laws, it turns out you can't, Minneapolis can't abolish its police department because police officers in Minneapolis have the right to hold the city to the collective bargaining agreement. And when it expires, if the two sides can't reach another agreement, 
an arbitrator just imposes a new agreement on it. You, you can't, under Minneapolis law, get rid of the police department. So you need a whole variety of reforms in order to impose what I'm calling radical transparency. But sloganeering on both the left and the right, I, I think, is extremely uh, unfortunate and counterproductive. To give you just one example, there's really very substantial data that police officers with college degrees are far less likely to use excessive force than officers without college degrees. So if you cut police budgets, what happens to your ability to hire people with college degrees? Well, it's extremely predictable. If you want people with college degrees, you've got to be willing to pay salaries commensurate with the qualifications. We have to understand the need for policing. We also have to understand the need for accountability. There is no policing strategy that won't occasionally produce tragic errors. And the tragic errors run in all kinds of directions. There are going to be tragic errors where officers kill somebody. There are also going to be tragic errors where officers don't respond in time. And community violence doesn't get adequately stacked. But a stop-and-frisk strategy that's responsive to the data, coupled with what I'm calling radical transparency, I think is the answer. The, the data is now overwhelming that poverty and inequality drives crime rates. So for those of us who are troubled by poverty and inequality, it, it shouldn't surprise us that there are high levels of violent crime in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. There, there are, there's a wealth of sociological research demonstrating that. Now, that problem needs to be addressed in a variety of ways. We need to remediate inequality, but we also need to offer safety to the people who live in those neighborhoods. And at the same time, we can't do it in a way that insulates the police from accountability. The more aggressive your hotspot policing strategy is, the more aggressive your accountability program needs to be as well. I asked Dr. Rosenthal about some of the other reforms on the table. For example, scaling back police involvement, as some of our other guests mentioned. It is frequently the case that officers encounter on the street a mentally ill individual who is unstable, who may be potentially violent, and officers are, are ill-suited to assess how to deal with that individual. So you start with the idea that if, if we could add different kinds of responses to our menu, which is now largely limited to the police, that would be a good thing. And that's going to be the sentiment until the first time we send out a social worker and she gets killed. And that's going to happen. So the fact is that if we want to supplement our response with people like clinical social workers, um, we have to not replace the police, but supplement the police. We shouldn't be sending out social workers without adequate protection for their safety. Okay, Marjorie, I'd like to think back to part one of this series. Doctors Haberfeld and Kraska didn't feel hopeful that the Derek Chauvin case was going to change much about policing in America. I wonder how we situate Dr. Rosenthal in this discussion. Well, in some ways, he was actually more optimistic. If you're of the view, as I am, that what we need is police culture change, then the Derek Chauvin case did change something. It, it didn't change everything. But the fact 
Minneapolis police officers from throughout the supervisory chain were willing to testify against one of its own is really quite radical and, and sends a very important message. Now, again, it's kind of a blunt instrument. One of the things you really have to worry about is that if the only message you're sending the police is that they're more likely to get prosecuted, fired, or disciplined, then that outcome is not necessarily positive. Crime, after all, violent crime, after all, is escalating rapidly in Minneapolis. Another thing I like to say to people is, is we could drive the rate of unjustified police violence to zero pretty easily. We could just tell officers, never get out of your squad car. They wouldn't be shooting anybody. But that's not going to do much for the people living in high crime neighborhoods in Minneapolis. A, a very wise Chicago police officer said to me years ago, the worst thing that ever happened to us was when we got air conditioning in the squad cars. We want officers to get out of their cars and intervene effectively in the streetscape. But we can't have that happen if we're not willing to reach for a middle ground, which says that officers will be held accountable, but we're also going to have a measure of understanding for how difficult those streetscapes can be. The, the um, legislation that was enacted in Maryland a few weeks ago over the governor's veto, which eliminated a whole set of protections police officers have from discipline, I think is the single most encouraging event I've seen in the wake of this verdict because it suggests that at least some elected officials are willing to rethink the idea that police officers ought to have extraordinary insulation from any measure of accountability. The people that police arrest on a daily basis are held accountable for their conduct. We should ask the same of police officers. Okay, I just want to take a little break here to give a shout out to our main sponsor, Precision Nutrition, the world's largest nutrition coaching, education, and software company. Without them, this show doesn't exist, so we're really grateful for their support and their encouragement. If you're interested in nutrition coaching for yourself, or you're interested in enhancing your knowledge through their number one rated nutrition certification program, you can check them out at www.precisionnutrition.com. All right, back to the show. Okay, Marjorie, so far we've heard from a group of academics whose ideas, expectedly, bias towards their areas of study. Dr. Haberfeld runs an education program, so her solution is better education. Dr. Rosenthal is a lawyer, so his solution is different laws. This idea of seeing how people's own biases drive their opinions, solutions, etc., is always fascinating to me. Yeah, it's interesting for sure. I guess we should point out that there are very few new ideas on the table here. The conversations that we're having with the guests, these are reflective of conversations that have been going on for decades. I would say the exception is defend the police, and that's gotten national attention more recently. It's something that is starting to see results in cities like Los Angeles and Baltimore, to reallocate police funding to things like community programs and trauma centers, and it helps to address the root causes of crime. 
Yet, over the last few decades, hundreds of thousands of officers have been trying to do their jobs, most of them ethically and to the best of their abilities. And of course, police are not monolithic. It's made up of individuals, each of whom brings their own personality, their own family history and lived experiences. And those things are really important in a job where interactions with the community and demeanor are vital. So we're going to hear from one such person. My name is Aaron Applehans, and I'm sheriff of Albany County, Wyoming. Our county's quite large. It's about the size of Delaware, about 4,300 square miles. Sheriff Applehans has the distinction of being the first African-American sheriff in the state of Wyoming. He's held that post since December of last year. It is quite a time for Applehans to take over the post amid an ongoing pandemic and a national discussion around policing in America. While one might see this as a difficult time to take over a high-profile police position, Abelhan sees it as a real opportunity to do important work. When things are going along, business as usual, people are reluctant to make changes. However, during more volatile times, folks may be open to shaking things up. Note the timing around it. You know, we're in a kind of a different time in policing now where both communities are really starting to rethink what policing is, not only nationwide, but what does it look like in their own communities. I come in um, with kind of a fresh set of eyes and and definitely a different perspective than most people in my position, simply because I'm coming in not only as a law enforcement officer, but as an African-American that's had to not only deal with racism in America, but also have to kind of navigate the criminal justice system uh, on the outside, looking in through some of my family members. I have a little bit of a unique perspective coming in because I can see it from both sides. Um, And so part of the reason why I was appointed is because I uh, not only look to further establish law enforcement within the county that I'm at, Albany County, but look to change it a little bit different based on what the, not only what the county needs, but what the county wants. And I've been pretty lucky coming in that the things that I think the county needs are also the same wants that the county's asking for in terms of its local policing. And that to-do list he was handed on day one was pretty hefty and could amount to some true change within Appahan's corner of Southeast Wyoming. A lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of allocating resources properly, de-escalation, diversifying workforce, and providing that training, those are all things that I came in looking to do. And the timing is pretty good. There are distinctions he makes, and they're not insignificant ones about the different ways a police department can evolve. Well, reform's probably not a bad word, to tell you the truth, because we're just looking to make changes. So it's reform, it's a little bit of a reimagination and kind of a reallocation, to use kind of all the big re-words there <laughs> in terms of, of what we're trying to do. You know, it, you know, my thought process coming in is that you don't necessarily need police to be called for every call the community also feels the same way. So it it makes it a little bit easier to get started on this work of being like, hey, 
what do police really need to respond to? What does the sheriff's office really need to respond to? And how can we partner with other people um, and other resources that we have within the county and the state to have a little bit better response to some of the issues that, that we deal with on a regular basis? I asked if he feels any extra pressure being the first African-American sheriff in the state, especially during a time when race and racism is at the forefront of big conversations, particularly in policing. I mean, I, get, I don't feel extra pressure, but I got to qualify that a little bit just because of, to be honest, kind of the way I grew up. You grow up black in America, things are a little bit different for you than it is for everybody else. And so it's not something that was super on my radar. You know, I knew that I was going to have to deal with it coming in. So I don't really feel that pressure. I do feel that there's some extra responsibilities that that I take on. And I knew that going into the job. You know, we're dealing with race relations, race issues here as a country. I come from a state that isn't particularly known for their diversity. I should interject here. Wyoming's population is 90% white. Broadly speaking, it's conservative, though that's shifting. The state has had one female governor, Nellie Taylor Ross, who served from 1925 to 1927, and she was actually the first female governor in the U.S. The state was also the first to give women the right to vote. This is a bit of a digression, but I wanted to underscore that Wyoming has a unique and sometimes complicated history with progressive ideas. But back to Sheriff Applehans. And the other thing that I knew that I was going to have to do is, you know, not only create a good example, but I'm kind of the one making trails out here. And make sure that I hold that door open behind me. I'm not going to stay in this position forever. There's going to be people that are looking up to me and I want to be able to provide those mentoring opportunities as well so that after I leave, everybody else has the same, if not better, opportunities than I had when I was trying to get to where I was at. His mindset affects the way he sees the justice system and his place in it. I've seen both sides growing up. I've had some family members that have been involved in the criminal justice system. And one of the major rubs I have about the criminal justice system is that sometimes it gets to be way more punitive than it is rehabilitative. Without sugarcoating it, there's definitely a, a different set of rules for some people than there are for other people. And definitely a certain set of sentencing requirements for some people than other people as well. The way I approach it is every person is a person. And we want to make sure that we're policing that issue specifically. That's one side of it. And then the other side of it is I'm in a position now where I have a, a lot more influence in terms of changing some of those systemic issues that we have within the criminal justice system. It's a lot of times punishing people unfairly. You got people with low-level possession charges doing hard, hard time. Nonviolent criminals doing lengthy sentences as well. So it's not rehabilitative. If, if anything, it perpetuates kind of how that system was originally set up. Keep certain populations down keep them down permanently. So I look at it with a lot more compassion, uh, a lot more empathy. Applehans followed the George Floyd trial, 
though not super closely, as being a sheriff is a full-on job. He understood why people were nervous about it. Old enough to have watched the Rodney King trial, he knew that the outcome was not set in stone. But on that day, he says, the state of Minnesota got it right. And the criminal justice system got it right. And the outcome is actually positive for police as well. You know, that verdict is good for law enforcement. You saw during the trial where there's a lot of officers that was like, hey, and they testified under oath. That's not the way we do business. That's not the way we're trained. That's not the way to apply, you know, the training that we did have. And so it's good to show the public that there are good officers out there and that there's there's still honesty and integrity within the profession. Also, Applehans thinks that some change may just come along too. Maybe not an overhaul, but it could help both police officers and the public. A lot of the changes that are going to come from the verdict in terms of how to de-escalate situations, what use of force should be used, a lot of that's going to change a ton of different police departments in terms of their policies and procedures with more focus on de-escalation. That's a good thing as well. It's unfortunate, I don't want to gloss over that unfortunately somebody had to lose their life unjustly um, for us to make these changes and that's what's still just really, really sad about it. But trying to take some of the good out of that verdict, it's going to be good for law enforcement. You're going to see you know, a lot of a lot of law enforcement begin to change um, and hopefully they can kind of sustain those changes and and implement those changes for the good of the communities that they serve. His wish list for national reform dovetails with what he said before. The criminal justice system should work to rehabilitate people, leave them better than they were before. Low-level crimes like marijuana possession shouldn't turn into decades in jail with few prospects of jobs and little support after people have served their time. Horrible crimes should have punishments that fit, but so should small crimes. The the pie-in-the-sky question is a nice intellectual exercise, but it also underscores how much work there is to do. Sometimes the work can be done within a generation, sometimes not. But so many people are putting in the hours, doing the work, to make changes. Sheriff Applehans is one of them. And he's talking to people, talking about hot-button issues like resources, race, economics, crime and punishment. I'm not afraid to talk about these topics. And a lot of the community groups that we've started here since I've been here, you know, we've always said, let's talk about these things. Let's see what we can do. We're on a local level. And so I'm always optimistic that we can make changes, especially on a local level. It's quite a bit harder to do it on a a state level and even worse on a national level. And so a lot of it in in my local area is just um, the openness that I have. And then definitely receiving the same openness from my community to want to wanna talk and interact and, and find solutions to some of these problems that we have. Okay, this is where we're going to end part two of this three-part series. In part one, Marjorie Korn talked with two different academics about what's wrong with policing today, whether the Derek Chauvin trial has the potential to change anything, and what change could look like if it were to happen. In part two, which you just listened to, 
Marjorie spoke with Dr. Larry Rosenthal, professor of law at Chapman University, and Sheriff Aaron Applehans of Albany County, Wyoming, who have slightly different takes and significantly more optimism about upcoming changes to law enforcement in the wake of George Floyd's killing. Finally, in part three, Marjorie and guests will talk about race. They'll explore why, whether racism motivated Chauvin's actions or not, it continues to be an important part of this conversation, both publicly and privately in our homes with our children. Before we end, I want to let you know that the Dr. John Berardi Show is now on YouTube and that we're running a little contest over there with our two sponsors, Precision Nutrition and Changemaker Academy. There are $15,000 in prizes up for grabs and all you have to do to enter, it's really simple, is to subscribe to our new YouTube channel and take a screenshot of your subscription. Once you have that, email it to us at youtube at drjohnberardishow.com Make sure you spell it D-R rather than D-O-C-T-O-R, and you're done. Like I said, really simple. From there, just before the release of our next show, we'll randomly select three winners who get to choose from among 15,000 in prizes, including a spot in the Precision Nutrition Level 1 certification, the Precision Nutrition Level 2 certification, or Precision Nutrition Coaching. Winners get to choose which one they want. Winners also get to choose one of the following, a copy of my book, Changemaker, or up to $75 of Precision Nutrition Apparel. And finally, winners also get a spot in Changemaker Academy's new course, The Career Blueprint. Can't wait to find out who wins. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, Dylan Groff, who edited and sound designed this episode. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>